Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. On October 31st, the Supreme Court will hear oral argument in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard College and Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina. The cases are both challenges to the university's consideration of race in their undergraduate admissions process. The challengers have asked the justices to overrule their 2003 decision in Grutter versus Bollinger, holding that the University of Michigan Law School could consider race in its admissions process as part of its efforts to achieve a diverse student body. Today, we will talk to lawyers on both sides of the dispute. In a little while, I'll talk with Corey Liu, who is a partner in the Ashcroft Law Firm. He filed a friend of the court brief supporting the challengers in the case. But first, we have David Inohosa, the director of the Educational Opportunities Project at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. He represents a group of UNC alumni who are defending the university's admissions policy. David Inohosa, welcome. Thanks for joining us. And thank you very much for inviting us. So let's start at literally at the beginning. Who are your clients in this case? Well, we represent five incredible students who are now alumni from the University of North Carolina. They're a multiracial group, both Latinx and African-American. And they hail from you know, places as small as Hendersonville uh, to Kentucky and Kansas. So we represent both in-state and out-of-state students and uh, as well as high school applicants, students who had applied back when we had intervened uh, to UNC as well. Can you describe for our listeners, please, the UNC program that is being challenged in your case and then the lower court's rulings? Uh, It's an incredible program that is very comprehensive, as you may know. They take over 40,000. I think over this past year was over 50,000 applications for only, you know, 5,000 who ultimately will will enroll or around that range. Uh, They have an overall acceptance rate that, you know, is around 25% of all the students who are applying to the university. But in their admissions program, more specifically, it is a what's described as a holistic, individualized review. There's no point systems, there's no formula with this, but it is reviewing the whole application, which includes you know over 40 criteria from veteran status to family income to uh, essays and test scores and grade point averages, extracurricular activities, special talents. And among these several criteria that are considered is race as well for underrepresented students. Those are students that have been identified by the University of North Carolina as students who have not always had open pathways to the university and those being Native American, Black, and Latinx students. So this case went to trial and what happened next? Well, it was a two-week trial during the pandemic. It had been postponed, you know, one or two times. And it was held in November of 2020. And SFFA presented only two witnesses, two expert witnesses. There were no fact witnesses uh, who argued for petitioner in the case. Uh, No students, no faculty, no administrators, just two 
experts with incredibly flawed data and methodology, which is what, you know, the court, you know, had reached after analyzing. The court also heard from several students, including our clients and other witnesses who testified about their own experiences, both in applying to UNC, both in the challenges they faced in grade school, including some students who had kind of been persuaded not to apply in high school for the tougher college-ready courses like AP and IB coursework, and they basically had to fight to get into those classes, and, but also about you know the tremendous benefits that they've experienced at times on UNC's campus because of the more greater diversity. Uh, and as the court found, you know there was great, not just diversity among groups, but within groups. So some of our students had testified about how, you know, Black is not a monolith. You know, there are many impacts of people, you know, depending on what communities they've come from, whether it's rural or urban, it might be based on their own religious upbringing, it might be on their income. It's a great, rich diversity of viewpoints, you know, that is really the end goal of UNC's admissions program, you know, to make sure that they are acquiring the benefits of diversity and broader diversity, not just racial diversity. Racial diversity is an important point, but it's also, you know, broader diversity around income and language and first generation students and the like, you know, just trying to build that kind of atmosphere on a campus that we learn to love, you know, when those of us, you know, who go on there, but there are some real challenges also still because of the fewer numbers, there's only 8% of African American students at UNC. And this is a state that has over 20% of African Americans in its population. And so it's still not unfamiliar for a Black student to be the only Black student in that classroom or a Latinx student or a Native American student. They also, you know, still experience extreme degrees of racial bias and stereotyping, uh, both in the classroom and across campus. So, you know, as much progress has been made, there's still some continuing challenges. And this is something that the court also recognized. So ultimately the court held on the two claims that attacked the program, that the university had considered race neutral alternatives and considered them in, in good faith and found that they weren't working about as well in order to substitute for race and still acquire the tremendous academic and social benefits of diversity. But two, it also found that race was not a predominant factor. So you see petitioner SFFA blowing its bullhorn that, oh, there's using this mammoth-sized weight for race, you know, excluding students just because of their race. There's no evidence of that, you know, in the record. And there's no evidence of that from the district court's opinion. The district court found that in some rare instances, it is. Uh, considered, you know, as a factor for some students, but again, it's an individualized consideration. And so no one is ever penalized. There's no evidence of a white student being denied admission who was more qualified ahead of a Native American student who was admitted. They want to point to test scores and, and grade point averages, but one that data itself, you know, is quite skewed. But two, it doesn't say the whole thing. I mean, we have 40 plus criteria that are relied on by the university. And so the court rejected both of those claims and it had rejected the claim also at the front end of the trial that 
race conscious admissions programs were unlawful, and that's because of the precedent you know established in Grutter in two thousand three by the court. Let's talk about Grutter. The, the lower court rejected SFA's argument that race conscious admission programs were unconstitutional. And now they've come to the Supreme Court asking the court to overrule Grutter. What is your best argument for not overruling Grutter? Well, there's lots of great arguments. I don't know if I could pin something down, you know. Fair enough. But, you know, for all the great reasons that the Grutter decision was reached about the tremendous academic and social benefits of diversity for the First Amendment interests that universities have in selecting their own enrollment and establishing their own goals, all of those, you know, great reasons and the continuing struggles, especially like a university like the University of North Carolina that has a horrid history of discrimination in it, and it still impacts, you know, current recruitment levels, those present day effects still impact this. And I think, you know, beyond that, of course, you know, we feel that both the text and the history of the 14th Amendment Clause never intended to be colorblind. The Brown did not hold that the Constitution was colorblind. In fact, the defense of against these claims has much more similarities because you're trying to bring students together for cross-racial dialogue. Both integration and cross-racial dialogue were at the front, you know, of the Brown opinion, you know, really underlying foundational principles established there. And so as much as people want to say that we have our work cut out for us, you know, before this court, we feel it's quite the opposite. You know, the, the Constitution, the history, the law, the facts, and the precedent are on our side, and they're the ones who carry the heavy burden of reversing this. In the Greta decision in 2003, Justice O'Connor, in her opinion for the majority, said, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's been 25 years since Baki, and the number of minority applicants with high test scores and strong grades has increased and then she said, we expect that in 25 more, schools will no longer need to consider race in their admissions process. What do you do with, with this statement? Well, there was a lot of hope. And frankly, people on this side of the case shared in that hope that, you know, in 25 years, we would find race neutral alternatives or that universities would reexamine, you know, certain admissions criteria to ensure that pathways to leadership, you know, were open for all students. Um, but, you know, as we've fast forwarded over the last 19 years, we found that not to be true. In fact, we found a groundswell of movement and activities both in the, in the state and nationally that is trying to push back against racial, any notion of racial inequality. And the test scores, frankly, have not improved. And as we heard from the students, you know, the test scores themselves don't show exactly, you know, what their full talents are and their potential is to succeed. As a matter of fact, the college board submitted an amicus in this case, saying that, you know, very same thing. And I do want to say, you know, make clear that these students are incredibly talented. We're not suggesting that any of our clients were admitted because of the race conscious admissions plan. But what race conscious admissions plan does, and it's important because, you know, the Gruder case and its 25 year prediction didn't necessarily account for this, but it's that many university systems tend to overlook highly talented 
people of color, when they don't fit the mold of what they tend to think about who and what is a potentially successful student. And so it's to the University of North Carolina's credit and many other universities that are still keeping an eye to make sure that they're not overlooking highly talented students of color. And many of our students now, you know, who were trying to be kept from going into advanced coursework in high schools are now in medical school, are now applying or, or completing graduate school. Some are going to law school. I mean, this is really a great example of the potential for race conscious admissions and about Justice O'Connor's opinion and about Justice um, Powell's opinion in the Bakke case way back in 1978 that show the importance of this type of program, again, that is not penalizing anybody because of their race. There's only an individualized consideration of this among many other factors and only pursuing broader diversity. But it's important that, you know, for the nation itself to be able to be represented by its incredibly diverse community uh, that our pluralistic society deserves. I'm going to go back to something you touched on briefly. Justice O'Connor's opinion in the Grutter case was 5-4. The court in Bakke was splintered. And this is a very different court from those courts. Where on the bench do you see support? We see support from those justices who respect precedent, who respect the Constitution, who understand the differences between this case and other cases that have been overruled. And you can even look at the parents involved case, which is the K-12 case, which Justice Roberts, you know, issued his opinion. And he was distinguishing between K-12 schools and noting the importance of uh, racial diversity among broader diversity, noting the importance of individualized consideration of applicants, something that was not existing in those K-12 cases. And so again, you know, I think we're the ones who have the benefit of precedent, the benefit of history, the benefit of incredible stories of successful students uh, who have, you know, climbed the ladder despite the obstacles in front of them, and that UNC's race conscious admissions program has helped them achieve, and many others achieve their dreams. And it's not just for those students of color, but it's, you know, white students and Asian American students who also benefit from the increasing cross-racial dialogue, the opportunities to learn from people from different perspectives, whether they're informed by race or not. But it, it does, you know, benefit all students. So we think that, you know, this court will stand by, you know, its prior decisions and affirm opportunity for these students, affirm pathways to opportunity under our Equal Protection Clause. So let's say the court agrees with you and does not overrule Grutter. What happens next from a legal perspective? Do you win? You know, that's definitely a partial victory for those, you know, supporting equal educational opportunity in higher education. But, you know, the details matter in the wording of the ruling because have they underruled, you know, the precedent in such a way that universities would not be encouraged or not at least, you know, prohibited from pursuing race conscious admissions so that it makes it so difficult for universities to do. And 
uh, it's important, you know, that the court preserves ideals of Brown and Gruder in the opinion as well. So, you know, the proof will be in the pudding essentially on in the ruling. What would a ruling overruling Gruder mean for UNC and for higher education? It would be a tremendous setback, to say the least. There's over 200 universities that consider race in one way or another. Again, you know, depending on the extent of the overruling, there are some amici on their side that have said, you know, colorblindness directs the, the focus of the 14th Amendment and how and what does that mean beyond admissions. Some of them have suggested that it prohibits Black student associations on campus, you know, not recognizing First Amendment rights to freedom of assembly and freedom of speech, but that's how far they want to take this. So we see this, you know, as a down payment that they're seeking for even encroaching in on more uh, policy decisions that are best made, you know, by students and faculty and administrators. But it, it all depends, again, you know, on what the wording is. Is it very limited to race conscious admissions? Is it grounded in, you know, the 14th Amendment? Is it grounded in a colorblind ruling? There's all different levels of impact that a decision could make. But again, you know, the wording will matter and the interpretation of that wording will matter mostly. David Hinojosa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again for the opportunity. Corey Liu, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's start at what, with one of the questions at the center of the case, which is the challenger's request to overrule the court's 2003 decision in Grutter versus Bollinger. Is Grutter grievously wrong? I think so. Um, if you look at both Grutter and the Bakke case, which came before it, that both develop this idea of the diversity rationale as a justification to engage in racial discrimination and admissions, you don't really see a, a real engagement with the issue and with the possibility and reality that these policies could end up hurting some minority groups, such as Asians, um, in service of whatever goals they're trying to achieve, even to the point of making it harder for an Asian student to get in than a white student. And so what the Harvard case especially has done is brought that story to light. And I'll just say from personal experience, you know, I, I'm the son of immigrants from China. My parents grew up under communism, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution. And growing up here, you know, speaking two languages, one at home, one out in the world, uh, that was certainly a challenge. And I thought of myself as someone who faced discrimination. And yet when it came time to applying to college, I was reading, you know, how these policies worked and you hear about who's overrepresented and who's underrepresented. And so a lot of Asians had this suspicion that it was gonna be harder for them to get in because you just look to your left, look to your right at the other Asians around you. A lot of them are doing well academically. And so the question that came into a lot of our minds was, are we being judged compared to just the other Asians who are applying as opposed to really being looked at as an individual? And could it be harder because Asians are doing well academically, even harder to get in than a white student? And so the Harvard case has brought that to light and, and Gruder and Baki, neither of them really engage with that issue. They both talk about the idea of 
whether the majority might have a discrimination claim against policies that benefit minority groups, but they don't talk about how a policy might help some minority groups, but at the expense of another minority group, in this case, Asians. So I want to touch on something that, that you mentioned. In the Bakke case, Justice Powell cited the Harvard Admissions Program as an example of a program that would pass constitutional muster. And then the court cited it again with approval in Grutter and Graz. Does that matter? And doesn't it point to a sort of reliance interest? Harvard could say, this is what we've, you know, this is what we've been doing. Well, this is an example of perhaps misguided reliance on an amicus brief. Uh, Harvard filed an amicus brief in the Bakke case, and that was the genesis of this idea of race as one factor out of many looking at diversity. What the facts of the Harvard case showed after discovery, after an adversarial litigation process uh, supervised by the court, was that the description that was in Justice Powell's opinion was not an accurate description of what Harvard was doing, or at least not during the time period that was looked at in the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard case. Rather than just using race as a small factor, it was clear that for a period spanning about 20 years from 1992 to 2013, the racial composition of the class remained basically unchanged, and the Asians were about 17 to 18% consistently year after year, even though the number of Asians applying and the quality of those applicants was increasing over time. The facts in the Harvard case also show that Asians had to have higher SAT scores to get in. From Harvard's own internal investigation, that once demographics was looked at, the number of Asians that would be admitted decreases. This is Harvard responding to questions about whether it was discriminating against Asians. Harvard's own study found that once you added race into it, it would decrease uh, the number of Asians. The there's a lot of evidence in the case along those lines about how Asians are being discriminated against. The ideas that were put forth in that amicus brief um, have proven to be not accurate. Harvard uses heavy-handed racial balancing, the kind that Bruder actually says you can't engage in, which is to, to do whatever it takes to get your class to look a certain way. And uh, in, in the case of Harvard, that meant reducing the number of Asians and holding them to a higher standard for admission. One of the arguments that the challengers make, sort of an overarching theme, is the idea that the Constitution is colorblind. And at the oral arguments in October in Merrill versus Milligan, the voting rights case, Justice Jackson pointed to the history of the 14th Amendment. And she argued that the history shows that the amendment was intended to be race conscious rather than race neutral. Does that undermine the challenger's arguments? Well, I think the originalism argument um, can only take you so far. I'm glad to see more originalist arguments being put out there. And I think given the composition of the court, you're starting to see more of those arguments, but there are limits to uh, what you've just described. I mean, were the drafters and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment, would they have endorsed the idea of harming one minority group in order to help another minority group? I don't think it's disputed that Asians have been discriminated against uh, in America. Would the drafters and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment have thought it was okay to harm Asian Americans in order to help other uh, people of other races? Uh, I'm not aware that the legislative history or the, the originalist history uh, that you've just des described um, would embrace that. I, I, from my perspective, I just read the text um, and, and you're talking about originalism. It's what's the original meaning of the text. You see the word equal protection of the laws in the 14th Amendment. And you see the word discrimination in Title VI. And from my perspective, treating Asians differently than people of other races, 
treating comparing Asians against only other Asians rather than treating them as an individual, um, that violates equal protection and that violates Title VI. What happens if the court declines to overrule Grutter? Is there still a path to victory for the challengers? I think it's possible that, especially in the Harvard case, that you could rule that Harvard, whatever Grutter allowed, Harvard went beyond that, right? Grutter maybe embraced a certain amount of race being used as a tiebreaker or on the edges or in a subtle way, but Harvard really was doing anything necessary to get the racial composition to look the same year after year in a way that especially harmed Asian Americans. And so um, I think you, you could reach that ruling on a more fact-specific kind of finding without necessarily overruling Grutter. Um, there's also the potential that you could reconstruct Title VI not to be entirely coextensive with the Constitution. So the Bakke case said that we're going to read Title VI, which says you can't discriminate on the basis of race, as essentially covering the same terrain as the Equal Protection Clause of the federal constitution. But uh, the court could revisit that and say that Title VI actually, it uses different language. It doesn't say equal protection of the laws. It says no discrimination on the basis of race. And so no discrimination means no discrimination. And so on a, as a statutory basis, uh, they could find that Harvard um, violated the law as well. So I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but you, you said, particularly with the Harvard case, that the, the Harvard case could lend itself to a, a, a finding that the Harvard program did not comply with Cruder. Is it that because it's sort of in comparing it with the, the UNC program, just because of the, the program is different from the Carolina one? Well, with regard to the Title VI issue, um, Harvard is a private university. So the legal basis of the plaintiff's claim is actually under Title VI and not the Equal Protection Clause because the 14th Amendment has been understood to have a state action requirement, which means it's a prohibition on the government from imposing certain discrimination on the public, but private discrimination hasn't been held to be uh, embraced by the, that prohibition. But what Title VI says is that a university receiving federal funds, which is almost all universities in this country, including Harvard, does have to comply with the requirement of not discriminating on the basis of race. And then in Baki, the court held that we're going to read Title VI to be coextensive with the federal constitution. So uh, for Harvard, it's going to turn on Title VI ultimately. Of course, that would still give an opportunity to revisit Grutter because the federal constitution has been incorporated into the court's understanding of Title VI, but um, you could, the court could potentially read the statute as going beyond what the federal constitution requires. Well, Justice O'Connor's 25-year sunset, uh, to, to paraphrase, in Grutter carry any weight with the justices? And if so, how do you think that would play out? I don't think it would be dispositive in terms of changing any justice's decision, but I think it could potentially offer a way to um, distance the court from the policies that Grutter endorsed without having the words, we overrule Grutter in the opinion. Um, I suppose the, the court could say, at that time, we endorsed a limited use of race on a temporary basis. Uh, circumstances have changed now, and so we're nearing that 25 years. She said, we expect these policies not to be needed in 25 years. And at this point, we're coming up on almost 20 years, and so this would be the time to, to abandon those policies because they're inconsistent with the Constitution. So I think that's perhaps one way that uh, statement from Justice O'Connor could come into play. 
Do you think in the UNC case, the justices will consider it? And if so, I guess, how would they consider the long history at the University of North Carolina of discrimination against minority applicants? So the case hasn't been litigated as one involving a history of discrimination. It's based on the diversity rationale. UNC is arguing that it's trying to follow in the pattern of Grutter and Fisher and adopt a race-conscious policy for the purposes of achieving diversity. The Supreme Court has said that if there's been a judicial finding of past discrimination as a remedy, you can use certain race-conscious policies, but that's not the way the case has been framed. UNC has not made that argument. So in terms of what the history of discrimination is, that that's not something UNC has developed in the case. And the question is whether they, there's no race-neutral alternatives for them to achieve whatever diversity objectives they have. And so they say there are no race-neutral alternatives that will work as well as the current program. How does that factor in to the court's analysis? Well, UNC filed an amicus brief actually in the first, right, in the Fisher case, in the first time it went to the Supreme Court, the decision that came out in 2013. Um, and actually their own amicus brief says that if they were to adopt a top 10% plan similar to the University of Texas, the increase in diversity would be about 1%. That's their claim. So it would actually increase their racial diversity and the quality of the applicants that they received would be a little bit lower in terms of their academic preparation. They said there might be about a 56 point decrease in the SAT score. So they're not actually saying that we can't achieve diversity through a race neutral method. What they're saying is we can't maintain the same elite status that we would like while also using something like the University of Texas top 10% plan. But of course, if they were to lower their standards a little bit, um, that would certainly increase the pool of potential eligible applicants who uh, could be admitted and increase the diversity that way. So uh, the, the district court in the UNC case did acknowledge this, uh, this finding from the history of UNC in terms of you know, their study of race neutral alternatives, but ultimately didn't think that the university would be required to um, consider or adopt such a policy. So, but, but it, it, I mean, really a 56 point decrease in the SAT is not that much. And if that's the price uh, of, uh, if that's enough to justify um, racial discrimination against students, um, I, I don't think it's a very strong argument. Um, it, it really seems that they wanna perpetuate their elite status. And so they want their class to have a certain particular composition and that alone from their perspective is enough to justify discriminating against uh, applicants such as Asians. So I wanna spend a couple of minutes talking about the front of the court brief that you filed on behalf of Professor David Bernstein. Can you summarize the arguments that, that you make for our listeners? Sure, so we make two arguments in our amicus brief that have not really been well-developed in the Supreme Court's precedents. And so we're hopeful the court will engage with these regardless of how the court rules, um, because they're important in terms of the question of strict scrutiny and narrow tailoring. One of them is, where did these racial categories come from? So I'll just say, I, I've been describing myself as Asian, uh, a part of this conversation. Um, that's not really a label that I came up with. That's what the federal government has classified me as. Um, my family's from China, but the federal government would also classify people from India and Southeast Asia and, and various parts of that hemisphere really more than half the world's population would be classified as Asian by the federal government, even though, you know, if you ask someone from China, are they the same race as someone from India? 
I doubt anyone would say that. So there's an arbitrariness to these classifications. Um, Hispanic people, you know, as you may know from if you fill up the census, Hispanic is technically an ethnicity, which is different from race. So the question is, are you Hispanic or not Hispanic? And actually, there can be people who are Caucasian who are from countries uh, with Spanish culture and language who could truthfully identify as Hispanic under the federal government's definitions. So where did these categories come from? Professor Bernstein in his book, Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America, traces it back to essentially an ad hoc committee that was founded in the 1970s in the executive branch to unify the racial categories among different federal agencies. Basically, they noticed all the different agencies are using different categories. And so it's hard to, to analyze the data and make comparisons. And so that alone gives rise to the question of what, well, what's the right classification? And, and they didn't really have a scientific way to do it because these are kind of all arbitrary labels, but they decided we need to have some unified system. So they grouped all of the, they came up with this system of classification that we now are familiar with and all the federal agencies now use that. But even in the records of the deliberations and the explanations for those um, categories, the ad hoc committee said these are not anthropological or scientific. They should not be used to determine eligibility for federal benefits, pretty much saying don't use this for affirmative action. And there was a debate over whether people who are Indian, what we might call South Asian today, uh, are, are Caucasian or Asian. So going back again to the arbitrariness of the category, um, there's actually historical precedent. There's the case of United States versus Thin, um, where the court considered an argument from someone who was Indian who was trying to frame himself as Caucasian in order to get citizenship in the United States because that was being Asian would have been a disqualifying factor at that time under the laws in this country. And the Supreme Court said, well, we're aware that there's a lot of authorities that actually say Indians are Caucasian, but we all know that they're, they're actually very different from us. They don't look like us. <laughs> Most people would not consider them to be the same race as white people. And so he was not eligible for citizenship. But that just goes to show how these definitions have changed over time and they're really arbitrary in origin. And the, the courts never explain why it's okay to do that, right? These universities say this is under strict scrutiny, right? This is, there's no, we have no choice but to use these racial categories, in some cases imposing burdens on people because of their race in order to benefit other applicants. But why are these the right racial categories? No university, as far as I'm aware of, has ever explained why these categories are best suited for their educational missions. And so I think if we're gonna do strict scrutiny, to make sure this is truly narrowly tailored, the court needs to ask, why are these categories appropriate when so many people actually struggle with them and, and don't know how to identify? So that, I think you said you had two arguments and that was your first one. Yes. Yes, the second argument is the question of accuracy. And so this can take many forms. So we, we, we raise a number of potential sources of inaccuracy in terms of classifying people according to those categories that I just mentioned. Um, one possibility is fraud outright fraud, people just being dishonest. Uh, the universities rely on self-identification. And so in the first Fisher case at the Supreme Court, Chief Justice Roberts actually asked the attorney for the University of Texas, how do you verify someone's self-identified race? And the lawyer said, we don't. And Harvard doesn't. And I'm not aware of any university that does. And so that gives rise to the potential for abuse. Um, there's also stories that have been told of Asian Americans who tried to reduce the appearance of Asianness in order not to be penalized. One of them that we cite in our brief is uh, an article by Aaron Mack in Slate. He talks painfully about how he was trying to avoid anything that could make him look Asian and actually was hopeful that he would be misidentified as white because his name might have been a little ambiguous. 
in order to avoid the Asian penalty. And there's some other articles that have talked about this as well. Other issues are in terms of accuracy, um, how does a multiracial applicant identify, right? So Judge Boggs on the Sixth Circuit, who I clerked for, he raised this issue in a dissenting opinion he wrote in the Sixth Circuit from the Michigan case of Schutte, which dealt with Michigan's constitutional amendment banning affirmative action. But he said, what if he had someone who was, you know, maybe white, Chinese, and Hispanic? And actually, that, that's one of his grandchildren. And many, you know, as our country is becoming more and more diverse, many Americans struggle with this issue of how do I self-identify? Um, so there's an arbitrariness in that factor. If you try to look at people's physical appearances or their culture, again, the arbitrariness of how do you differentiate who's an authentic minority or who's not, and, and all of the um, stereotyping that can come into play with that. There's also uh, there's a, a study that we cited that showed that millions of people from one census to the next actually change their racial self-identification. And so, again, going back to the narrow tailoring question, these policies are supposed to be using race as narrowly as possible. And if the schools can't even authenticate that whatever the purported benefits that they're trying to achieve are actually happening because we don't know how accurate these self-identifications are. That's another problem with these policies. Well, we have a lot to listen for on October 31st when the court hears arguments in these cases. Corey Liu, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you again to both of our guests, David Hosa and Corey Liu. If you have a question about these cases, Send us an email at feedback at scotusblog.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 202-596-2906. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review because it helps new listeners find us. Scotus Talk is produced and edited by Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, James Ramoser, and Katie Barlow.